Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Chapter 4, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Let's pray. Holy Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity to come together as a family of believers this morning and hear from you. We thank you for your word and your truth. And Lord, may we never think that we are above your word and truth. And may we humbly always sit under the authority of your word, God. I thank you for what you have for us this morning. And Lord, I just pray that you bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Lara. Thanks, worship team. Good morning. For those who don't know me, my name's Kyle. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Emmanuel, and uh, as we jump in, I just want to share with you a little bit of a story that helps me sort of think about where we're going this morning. The story begins on a cold and foggy day off the coast of California when a young woman named Florence Chadwick stepped into the water to begin a 20-mile swim to Catalina Island. Now, she was the first woman who swam the English Channel both directions, and so for her, this was a very achievable goal. But as she entered the water that day, the conditions were much less than desirable. And so as she swam, she began to find herself quite stressed and quite lost because as she swam, she sometimes couldn't even see the boats that were accompanying her on either side as she tried to make this crossing. So after 14 hours at first of pulling and kicking, uh, she decided it's time, it's done, I want to give up. Now her mom was in one of the boats next to her and called out, no honey, keep on going. And so that kept her going for about another hour or so. But exhausted, totally defeated, both physically and mentally, she finally called it. That's it. I'm done. I can't do another stroke. And so after bartering with those on the boat who were there to encourage her, they said, all right. And they pulled her out. Sadly, though, once she climbed aboard, they realized they were less than a mile from her destination. Completely defeated, she just went back to her home and just couldn't gather herself together until the next morning where she kind of put on a brave face and went to meet with the media teams and she said, you know what? I think if I could have seen the shore, I might have made it. 
And the scripture that Lara just read, we're told by Paul that we're citizens of heaven. And this is meant to be sort of an aspirational statement, something that sort of drives us on all through the book of Philippians. We've heard Paul actually saying, you know, think about Jesus. Think about what your destiny is with him. Think about what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And that's supposed to push us on. But I think like Florence looking out at the fog, many of us kind of come to those passages and we think, I mean, I intellectually know what's going on, but I don't know if I really see it. I mean, when I think of being a citizen, I think, of course, of being a citizen of Canada. My family has been here for hundreds of years. I've grown up here my whole life, and it's Uh, an understanding that I just have with our culture and our place. I've traveled most of our country. I haven't been to the Northern Territories or to the Maritimes, but all the other provinces and all around those provinces, I've been and had opportunity to have family and friends and go on different trips and things. And and so I kind of know what it means to be a citizen of heaven. I get the culture, I get the place, I get the people. And so I have this vision of what it means to live on like this. But heaven, heaven's a little bit different to me. I mean, I don't think about heaven all that much. I don't really have a lot going on up here in my mind when someone says, what does it mean to be a citizen of heaven? And as I started thinking back through Uh, the time that I've grown up in the church or the time I went to to seminary to study to be a a pastor, the time that I have even been a pastor over the last 14 years or so, I've realized that in all that time, through all that study, I hadn't really spent a lot of time talking about heaven or learning about that place. But if that's a place that I'm supposed to be a citizen of, Maybe I should have a better sense of what that means, a better understanding of that place I belong. And so over the last number of weeks, I've been studying about heaven. What does scripture have to say about this place that we as followers of Jesus are citizens of? And my hope today is to sort of paint a picture of a theology of heaven. What is heaven look like? What is it? Where does it belong? Where do we belong within it? Now, it's a huge subject, and honestly, this week, it was more chopping down things that I couldn't have time to say, uh, and more questions than perhaps answers, but I'm hoping that as we continue to steep on Paul's words and consider this, that we would dive into this study a little bit more seriously as believers, as followers of Jesus. And so today we're doing something a little different. I'm not going to stick right to this text, which we normally would. We're going to kind of jump all over, and I'm going to give you lots of references. And so hopefully you're going to take notes, uh, because I'm not going to be able to read everything uh, that I'm going to give to you today. So I encourage you to just jot down notes as we're going, if this is something you're interested in learning more about. And then that way you'll be able to continue asking questions and studying. And I'm hoping for all of those of us who are in community groups who are studying our sermon series that this week upcoming, you'll be able to jump into some of those places and continue on.
But as we think about this problem of picturing heaven, at least the problem that I have, I want for us to just for a second take a moment, and I just want you in your imagination to picture what it looks like. What do you think of? What do you see when you think of heaven? What are you doing there? What are others doing? What do you picture? Well, my guess is you probably picture one of three sort of common visuals that comes with these questions. The first, perhaps, is just a blurry sense of some place where God is and people go and there's not much definition to what's going on. For others who are perhaps impacted by the commercials of the 90s, you picture angels in clouds like the Philadelphia cream cheese lady. That's what I always think of. But others still picture some boring church service in the sky that just keeps going on and on. Were any of those accurate? I see a few of you nodding along. Good, I'm glad. Well, John Eldridge, in his book, The Journey of Desire, said this. He said, nearly every Christian I have spoken with has had some idea that eternity is an unending church service. He says, we've settled on an image of this never-ending sing-along in the sky, one great hymn after another, forever and ever, amen. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of that, I don't want to go. I identify with Huck Finn, who Mark Twain used to give his assessment of heaven, who said, well, if that's what heaven's like, I'd rather go to hell with my friend Tom Sawyer, because it sounds like a lot more fun. Now, of course, I don't actually want to go to hell. I would much rather go to heaven. But when I hear this picture of just a never-ending sing-along, I go, ugh. I mean, I love coming to church. I love singing worship songs. I love being expressive in our musicality. But that's not what I'm hopeful of. And, but, I, but if that's how we think, either this blurry picture or just this sort of puffy clouds and boring people playing harps or we just picture this sing-along, it's no wonder that we don't get excited when Paul says, hey, we're citizens of heaven. It's no wonder we're not driven on if we have such a blah sense of what God promises is in store for us. But thankfully, there's good news. And the good news is that scripture has more to say than probably most of us are aware of. At least a lot more than I was aware of before I started digging in a little bit more. It's going to be much more than being stuck in a sanctuary in the sky. It's going to be much more than just floating on a cloud. Now, as we consider heaven today, we're actually considering two things. And that's a little bit strange, I realize, but what we come to see when we read scripture is that there is actually two heavens written about in scripture. We see that there is a heaven that is in its present state, the one that we maybe first might think of, and then there is a future state which God will bring about when he creates a new heaven and new earth. 
If you were to read Revelation 21, verse 1 to 3, we'd read the Apostle John write this. He said, then I saw when God gave me a picture of this. He said, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first, earth and, uh, first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. So if there's a new heaven, there must be a present one. There has to be an old one, so to speak. And so we have to understand that as we read scripture and read about the heavens and what God is going to speak of, there's going to be some differences and some sort of uh, expansion of what we think of as we go along. But before we get to the new one, let's just start with this old one. What is the nature of this present heaven? Like, like what is it like? What, what is it? Well, for starters, it is a real physical place where people are in the presence of God right now. How do we know it's a, a real place where people are with God? Well, we can read the words of Jesus. As Jesus was being crucified, he looked to those criminals on his left and his right, and to the one, this dying thief on the cross who decided to believe in Jesus. He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So you're going to be going with me, God, to a place Today, it exists, it's there, it's tangible. There's other places, like when we read earlier in Philippians, as we've been doing this study in verse, chapter 1, verse 23, Paul said, when we die, we go to be with Christ. Well, heaven is the place where God is, and it's a physical place where we go when we're absent from the body. That's what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says there, when we are absent from the body, we become present with the Lord. So heaven being this real place is a really important thing that we need to think about, and especially the fact that it's a place we go immediately to. Because this helps us have an understanding that's different from those who would say believe in purgatory. There's people who actually believe that there's another place that we go to between now and our death and being in God's presence, which we get sort of purged of all the yuckiness that happens and that comes along with us before we're prepared to be in the presence of God. Well, if we study scripture closely, we see that's not true because Jesus' death was enough to clean us if we put our faith and trust in him. And so we don't have some immediate state. We don't have some extra place we go like purgatory. We die and then we go to be with God. That's important. It also helps us to understand that we don't go into some sleep-like state. There's not just this, like, nothingness that we vanish into. There's not just this, this place we go. Some Christians believe that that's what happens, is that we die, and then we go into nothingness until Jesus returns. Well, I just don't see how that's possible if Jesus says things like, today you're going to be with me in paradise. So we get this sense that there's this uh, place where we go when we die to be with God. And I want to make it really well known that it is a physical place. 
Now, I know saying that sometimes has us go, I don't know what that really means. For some, it actually makes us quite uncomfortable because it sort of despiritualizes in our mind what heaven might be like. But I actually want to encourage you to think about how you got that impression. If you don't think of heaven as a physical place and you think of it solely as a spiritual one, what is it that painted that picture in your mind? I'm going to tell you. The Greek philosopher Plato, who lived before Jesus did. You see, as Westerners, we've been massively impacted for millennia by Greek philosophy. And there was this great philosopher many of us have heard of, Plato, and he had lots of interesting things to say. But one of the most notable ones was this, that things that are material are bad. So our bodies are bad, the earth is bad, the things that go around us have gone bad, and so they must be separate from God. Material is evil. And then he would go on to say, conversely, that things like our soul and heaven are actually good, and therefore they cannot be tied to physical things. And so how that's actually impacted us has been quite uh, severe in terms of how we as Christians even think about life. What about the fact that we read scriptures that say, don't listen to your heart because your heart will leave you towards evil? Well, if we w- listen to that with what Plato says, we go, yeah, that makes sense. But then we throw out the Bible verses where it says, the Lord will give you the desires of your heart. The Lord will change the way you think and will speak to you in spirit and truth into your heart and mind. And so what we have to be very careful of if we get sort of prickly about the sense of heaven being a physical place is to make sure that we're actually coming to that conclusion because of what scripture says. And to me, scripture actually says that both things, spiritual and physical, take place at the same time in heaven. One of the great examples that I have of this is actually in Acts chapter 7, where we see Stephen, the very first martyr, die for his faith, and right before he dies of being stoned, he gets a glimpse of heaven. It's a Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I have seen heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now listen, I fully believe that there's all sorts of different genres of literature in Scripture that help us to interpret things differently. There's poems, there's apocalyptic literature, but this right here is a narrative. Dr. Luke wrote this. This is a man of science who wrote the book of Acts, and he said this guy literally saw a physical place, and I believe that there he saw God. Wayne Grudem, who's a famous theologian, would say, Stephen did not see mere symbols of a state of existence. It was rather that his eyes were open to see a spiritual dimension of reality which God has hidden from us in this present age. Now, I don't really know why God 
has hidden heaven from us to be able to physically see. I mean, I feel like if we could just look up in the sky and see God and angels and all those who had chosen to follow Jesus with him, and we could perhaps look elsewhere and see all those who hadn't chosen God, I think it would be really easy to just say, well, I know what I'm choosing. So part of this is a divine mystery. God has chosen uh, to allow us not to see heaven, but there is times that we see where God will open it up, where he'll allow people to see it, or where he'll send angels, or he himself will come in physical form to allow us to experience the physical or the spiritual physically, tangibly in front of us. Scripture is also full of all sorts of language that helps us to know that it is a physical place. We have references in Revelation 7, 8, and 15, as well as in Hebrews 9, where it talks about a temple that's filled with smoke, where people are holding hands together, where there's musical instruments playing. And this isn't Some of this is symbolic in how we read scripture, but we also have to understand the author of Hebrews, who did not write in a symbolic way, said, what we experience on earth is like a low-budget copy of what's going on in heaven. He says, what we experience upon earth is a grace that God has given us to taste a little bit, a pale version of what's going on where he is and what he will bring to us one day. So we know that these people who have followed Jesus, who have been accepted by him, go up to heaven. And then in Revelation chapter 6, verse 9 to 11, we see that they're doing things. They're talking to one another. They're singing. We see that the, it says the saints pray for those who are living upon earth. So we have this sense that right now, what heaven is, is a place where God the Father and God the Son are living. We know the Holy Spirit is active, but he's living within us, and he goes back and forth from us to God. We hear that he carries our prayers, so there's some mystery there, but we know this is where God has got stuff going on. It's where he resides. It's where he brings Jesus' followers after they die to remain with him. And that's going to continue on for some time until Jesus returns again. Peter, when he's preaching in the book of Acts, he says, Christ must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything, as he promised long ago through his prophets. So if you think I'm just bringing this stuff out of Revelation and you're kind of one of those people who's like, Revelation is all symbolic, I want you to hear those words. This is also talked about in the old prophets, the Old Testament writers. They have a lot to say about what's going on. We can go to places like Isaiah 60, some of the different Psalms, which will talk about heaven. But what we know is that at some point in history, which none of us will ever know, because Jesus says, you won't know the hour or the time, not even I do, only God the Father knows, but I will come back, and in that time... I will meet with all of those who believe in me. I will give them new bodies and I will restore and recreate the heavens and the earth. And so in the future, we see that there's going to be this new picture 
of what life looks like with God. But before we go there, let me just quickly touch on why. Why does this restoration need to happen? That was one of the questions that I, uh, you know, I, I popped up with, and I had an immediate answer in my mind, but I just you know, wanted to go back to Scripture and just really get a good sense of it. And we see that there's this uh, story, this grand story that goes through the Bible, which tells us that what began was good, and then was broken, and then God wants to bring it back to where he started. Right at the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, we see that earth and humanity were damaged because people chose to rebel against God. People chose to take that which he made perfect and distort it for their own desires. And because of that, we've destroyed this perfect creation state. I mean, it's hard to, to imagine it's hard to imagine what perfect creation could look like. I mean, if I go out there and stand there and I look at Mount Baker and I see some trees in the foreground, I'm like, man, this place is pretty good. But it doesn't take me long to look around and to look at myself and look at other people and see what's going on to realize, man, there is a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of damage that has gone on for thousands and thousands of years because of us and our rebellion against God. And we're told that when Adam and Eve first sinned, they brought a curse into the world, and that curse would keep suffering and death and destruction to continue on. That is, until Jesus came to deal with it all. But God's intent, his first vision was that there was just this garden that he would create where Humanity could live and carry on with him and experience the amazing things of, that came from his creativity, that we could walk upon the earth, that we could care for things, that we could exist with, with love and compassion and grace and mercy and all those good characteristics of God with one another and with him. And so when we screwed it all up, God said, I've had enough. I'm going to take care of this one day and I'm going to bring it back to what was. In fact, I'm going to make it better because it won't happen again. And so we see in these scriptures that Jesus will return to finish what he started. And 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to study if you want to go there to, to consider this. And he tells us that he, once and for all, will come and finish what he accomplished on the cross. On the cross, on the cross Jesus broke down the barrier between us and God. He allowed us by faith to be saved, to be in relationship with him. But he said that in the future, he will take care of it all. What he started on the cross and in his death and resurrection, he will finish by getting rid of all the powers and dominion and authorities that exist outside of him. And then this creator will bring a new heaven and a new earth. Man, that's such a good thing to think about. I mean, we could just stop there and just be amazed that the creator of everything loved us so much that he wanted to bring us back into relationship with him. I mean, that should be enough to keep us going on. But God in his goodness saw fit to tell us 
and give us a promise of what would continue on from the time we come into a relationship with him for eternity. And so he gives us some insight into this new heaven and new earth where we will exist with him forever, not just in the temporary before Jesus returns, but after that as well, and it's even better. If you want to read about this, there, there's a bunch of scriptures on the screen that'll pop up. Revelation 21, 22, Hebrews 11, 13, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 Peter 3, Isaiah 60. Go to those passages this week. If you're in a community group uh, this week and you're studying along with our sermon series, I encourage you to just have some people read out some of these things. It's amazing to see what scripture gives us. I mean, we have this blurry sense, but it could be so much more clear if we actually read the scriptures. Now, we won't know what everything will look like and exactly how it'll be because our minds are tainted by sin. Our vision for what earth can look like can only go so far. And scripture tells us that God can do far more than we can ask or imagine. So it's going to be even better then. So what I invite you to do is to just start picturing, though, and knowing, know that God's going to take it even further. But we know that God's going to create this new eden like space. And there's all sorts of parallels. We know that there's going to be mountains and rivers and trees. And we know that there's going to be a tree of life, which parallels what we see in the Garden of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know that from these scriptures that there's going to be people who live in houses and there's buildings because there's cities and streets that flow through. But while there's all this Construction and nature, we know that there's going to be no more pain or diseases or sickness or dysfunction between you and your family members. And you know there's going to be no more sin and there's going to be no more death and no more heartache and no more frustration. There's no more separation between us and God. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10, it says God's plan is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under Jesus. One theologian put it this way. He said, since where God dwells, there heaven is, we can conclude that in the life to come, on heaven and earth, there will be no separation as they are now, but together they will be merged. And believers, therefore, will continue to be in heaven as they continue to live on earth. This is where I think God invites us into having our holy imagination. You know, I think God gave us our, our ability to be creative and to think and to dream and to picture so that we could just begin to understand how good he is. Take a hold of some of the images of the things that you think are beautiful in this world and just stretch them as far as they can go. I mean, picture a beach where you can just sit and it's the perfect temperature and your toes are in the sand and there's that cool breeze, but it's warm and you have your favorite drink and your favorite family and friends and there's no negative impact of litter, of pollution. There's no family fighting. There's not that annoying guy with the terrible music down the beach. There's just perfect peace. And there's something that wells up within you, which is a song of praise to God. 
It's not a worship service, but it's spontaneous. You're just so amazed by who God is and what he's created and what he's got going on for all these people who are around you. And so you just start to sing out. And other people join in. And you can smile and you can laugh and you can just enjoy every moment that goes on. Imagine that person who you love, who is sick or struggling, no longer bound by their diseases and their ailments. Their bodies restored. That person who's lost a dimension, their mind is sharp. That will be our present experience in heaven where our bodies will be far beyond what we can ever even experience at the height of our youth and our life. We're told heaven will be a home. It'll be that place where we find peace and comfort, where we can just enjoy rest. But there's no more projects. There's no more leaking faucets. There's no more mortgage payments to be paid. Because Jesus is taking care of it all. This is an invitation into what God wants us to visualize so that we can see how great he is. So that we can know how much he loves us. And from there, we just worship. As far as we know, as scripture promises, there is going to be people of every nation and cultural group speaking every sort of language together worshiping God. But what does it look like? I mean, I've already told you what I hope it doesn't look like. I hope it doesn't just look like harps and singing, you know, the same songs over and over in perpetuity forever. And thankfully, scripture helps us to know that that is not at all what it'll be like. Scripture tells us it's not going to be a boring, non-stop worship set because worship is so much more. You know, we, we've been conditioned, especially if we've been in the church for a long time, to think of worship as singing, praying, and listening to some guy talk. Right? Like, that's what we think. I'm going to worship this week. That's what I'm picturing. I might have coffee. Maybe I'll talk to a few of my friends. Right? Like, like, like that's it. That's what we picture going on. But that is such a narrow view of worshiping God. God invites us to see every aspect of our human existence as an opportunity to worship him. Every activity of life, our marriages, how we interact with our family, how we run or operate in our workplaces or doing our business, or how we play together, how we spend time with friends, how we view education, how we deal with, yes, even politics— can be viewed as an opportunity to worship God, to thank him for who he is and what he's done, to celebrate how amazing he is. And so we see that while there's this new creation, we are invited into a place that's like a garden. We see that when God first spoke to Adam and Eve, he says, I want you to work alongside me to tend to this beautiful place, to experience the mountains and the rivers and the oceans. I want you to look up at the stars and be amazed at who I am. 
Scripture tells us that we're going to live places, that there's going to be good food and good drinks, and that we have opportunity to work with God, and all of those things are worship. Randy Alcorn, in his book on heaven, helps us to get sort of a a sense of what this might be like. He asks the question, have you ever spent a day or even a couple of hours where you sense God's presence as you hiked, worked, garden, drove, or read? Hopefully you have. I know I have. He says, well, those things are just foretastes of heaven. Not because we are doing nothing but worshiping, but because we are worshiping God as we do everything else. Our eternal life is going to be full of moments where you stand upon mountaintops and are amazed as you look out upon the ranges at who God is. Our life of worship is going to be full of moments of laughter and joy as we sit around with family and friends amazed by God's goodness and that he created us and that he saved us from our life when we lived upon the old earth. There's going to be singing, there's going to be dancing, there's going to be great tapas. There's going to be wonderful moments to celebrate him in all the diversity of life. For those of us who long, maybe you've never traveled, maybe you've never had the opportunity to experience certain things because of your economic situation. Well, God says there's not going to be those barriers anymore. You're going to be invited into all of creation. You're going to get to spend it with me. You're going to enjoy every moment. Whether at home, walking down the new streets, or hanging out in front of my throne, or talking with me in a coffee shop, I will be there, and I will be with you. And you will be with your God. You know, as I study more and more about heaven, the more and more excited I get It just continues to blow my mind. I mean, I just can't even articulate this. My mind has wandered into crazy things like, is heaven just another dimension that we haven't yet understood? And it goes on somewhere else. And it allows me to imagine the the mystery of the universe that God has created. It's invited me into this understanding that not only does God love me enough to want to talk to me, not only does he want to have a relationship with me, but he's prepared a good place before me where myself and my family and my friends who know him can live the most wonderful of life. This is what we're invited into as God paints this picture of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. And he says, this is what should motivate you. This is what should drive you. This is what should impact your living as you continue to go on. In Colossians 3 verse 1, Paul says here, he says, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. I truly think that our lives as followers of Jesus would be so much better if we took that advice. If we just took moments where we sat and we listened to what God would have for us. 
Now, obviously, there's so many more things that we haven't even covered today. Things like what's the state of our marriages and our, our relationship with kids and grandkids in heaven? Or are there animals there? Or, you know, questions of work and rest and play. But some of that's answered in Scripture and some of that's just going to be a mystery as we continue to go on. But what we know is good. And it should hopefully encourage us on. I think the reason Paul says have the same attitude and mind of Jesus, the the reason he says that we should consider ourselves as citizens in heaven and think about ourselves there rather than what's going on here on earth is not so that we have a relationship with him to void the other place, to dodge hell, but instead it's so that we come to a greater understanding of who the person is who has the greatest relationship with us. I think too that this relationship with God and this vision of the promise that he has for us might just maybe encourage us to invite others along. I mean, if there really is this place, if this is what God is promising, I want other people to know the God who will bring them there. I want them to know the one who even had the imagination to picture that far beyond what we could imagine. C.S. Lewis rightly observed this. He said, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did most for the present world were those who sought most of the next. Said the apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, these great men who built up the Middle Ages, those English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, they all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied in heaven. On the screen you'll see it says, It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective at this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim in earth, and you will get neither. Let us set our minds on being citizens of heaven. Yes, let's look forward to that place, but let us allow it to drive ourselves onwards, to be more and more like Jesus so that we can understand our God more, to be more and more like Jesus so that other people will actually want to know about the God who created heaven. So this week, take time. Read some of these scriptures. Reflect with your holy imagination that God has given you about what this could possibly be like and then allow that to move not just from being lost with your head in the clouds, but to be driven on. And finally, for those of us who might not yet be followers of Jesus, I simply encourage you to spend time hearing and receiving the message of God's love. The God who created the world that humanity has wrecked decided that that was not enough. And so Jesus came as God in the flesh so that he could die for you and me. So he could tell us about this place that he has for us and he can invite us into the relationship that takes place now and then and there. Jesus calls for every one of us. He says, if you would put your trust in me, if you would follow me now, you will see the wonders of what I have in store for you. 
So I encourage you, stop today. Talk to God. That's what praying is. Acknowledge that you've failed him, that you've been far from him, that you see what's going on, and then ask him for his forgiveness, which he promises to deliver on. And then begin to enjoy the picture of the God of heaven as he's in relationship with you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the wondrous mystery of heaven because it points us on to who you are. And God, I know that I, even as I preach this, Lord, I fail to encapsulate how incredible you are, how incredible the place that you call us to will be. But Lord God, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you will have used some of it to impact our hearts and minds, to reshape how we think about you. Lord, would heaven become the place that we're excited about because it is the place where you are. That is the place that we get to be as we know you and worship you and glorify you for all the good things you have created. God, I pray for those who might not be close to you today. That's because they have no relationship with you or they've just allowed the dullness of their relationship to just continue on and create a wedge. Lord, I just pray for each and every one of them by your Holy Spirit, would you light a spark? Lord, would you fan the flames in our hearts? Would you allow our, our imaginations to become holy to draw us into you? Lord, we thank you for your scriptures. I pray we would be driven to them so that we would know more and become more excited. And Lord God, that we would get to know you as our God a little bit more today and this week and as we live our lives into the future. And God, I pray as that happens, Lord, would you use us to be effective? Would you use us to be loving? Would you use us to be your tools as you bring other people into relationship with you. Would you help us to paint a picture of who you are so that the people in Abbotsford and our surrounding communities, so that people all across this world may come to know you as their personal God. And Lord God, would we celebrate it all because of you, the God, who gave us such a clear picture. Lord God, you are so amazing. We thank you for this. And we pray in your mighty name.